0: Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to see you. It's good to have the opportunity to welcome you with others who have done the same. And we're glad that you're here and listening in, whether you're doing so live and in person, whether you're listening online today, wherever you are catching this, we're glad that you're with us. Today, I want to talk to you about a sure thing. About a sure thing. Of course, they say in this world there are only two sure things, right? They are death and say the other one with me. Long sermons. Oh, yeah. Texas Taxes. Taxes. That's, that's the one. Long sermons, though, also. Can we just admit that? I mean, not at Pathway, but other places. There are, there are long sermons. That are a sure thing. But are there really only two? I mean, there are really only two sure things in life. It seems to me that there are a lot more than two. In fact, you might agree with some that I think are also sure things. And if you do, you could help me out by saying, that's right, when I mention it, all right? That's right, with a little bit of attitude. Let's try it once. Ready? That's right. There you go. There you got it. All right. So how about sure things? How about incessant political ads? That's right. Yeah, that's kind of sad with that one also. Um, All right. How about forgetting your password? That's right. That's a sure thing. How about still getting emails even once you've unsubscribed? (laughs) That's right. How about people forwarding you annoying cat videos? Yeah, not many as many that, probably because you're the one sending me the annoying cat videos. I know that you are. I can see your address when you send them. All right, really just two, though? I think that we can acknowledge that there are a lot more than two sure things in this world. And we're not the first people to make that observation. The Apostle Peter is a guy who makes exactly that observation observation, because he's talking in this letter that we're looking at about some sure things. And we've been taking a look at some of those, and we have more to take a look at today. And a very interesting perspective he brings on it today. And I'd invite you to go ahead and open up to the spot we're going to be looking at today, which is in 2 Peter chapter 1. It'll be helpful to you to have a Bible open in front of you or your Bible app so you can kind of follow along. It's an interesting little road he weaves us through on our way down this passage, and you'll want to see it. Second Peter chapter 1. We are just getting started with a new sermon series that is taking us through the letter of 2 Peter, and we're calling it Equipped. And the reason we're calling it equipped is because Peter throughout this letter is telling believers, writing to believers, and he is telling them all of the many different things that they have, that we have been equipped with. In the first week, we saw that he talked about the fact that we've been equipped with everything we need for life and godliness. That's amazing just to think of what he is saying in that everything that we need. No more excuses. Last week, we took a look at the fact that he talks about that we've also been equipped with faith, with a calling, with an election, and that that is a sure thing. Unfortunately, there was a problem that the people in Peter's day were dealing with. Jesus' first disciples had the same issue. You've probably faced it yourself. And where it rises up and where we see it, it can turn people and it can turn a strong faith into putting people on the sidelines. It can take people with conviction and confidence and turn it to weakness. It can take devotion and make it neglect. And it happens all the time. It was happening in Peter's day. It happens in our day. You may be facing it yourself. So what's the problem? The problem is doubt. Doubt. Do you ever struggle with doubt? Maybe doubt as to who Jesus is. Can Jesus and the things that we learn about Jesus, can those really be trusted to actually live our lives by? How about the Bible? Can it really fully be trusted? Or what about your faith? You ever have doubts about your faith? About whether or not you are really fully in faith, and if you are, why do you do things that you do and don't do other things that you know that you should do? Do you ever have doubts about whether you're a believer in Christ? Do you ever have any doubts that spring? If you're one who faces doubts, and inside, inside Scoop, we all do. My purpose here today is to not beat you up about that, or to have you beat yourself up about that, because the fact of the matter is there are challenging things to understand. Some things are difficult to understand. And on top of that, and this is particularly potent for today, there are also people who are around who are actually working to increase your doubt, working to lead you astray. It was a problem in Peter's day, it's a problem in our day today. Have you ever heard of the internet? There's all sorts of nuances of theology, things that you might look at and say, well, that sounds a lot like what I've been taught before. Now, some of the things you read there are so egregious, like those would never snare you. But other things can and do. And that was a big problem in Peter's day, and so he writes 2 Peter, the letter that we're looking at to speak into circumstances of doubt, to help people who were struggling with faith issues, who were struggling with Jesus issues, who were struggling with these false teachers that were bringing ideas to the front that were confusing people to help them to get it straightened out so that they might not get tripped up by issues of doubt. But the passage in front of us today doesn't just tell us, here's what's true. What it does is it tells us, here's why you can have confidence in the things that you've been taught, in the things that you believe. Here's how you can have confidence to rise above the doubts that otherwise would sideline you. Is this going to be helpful for anybody? I mean, this is helpful for me, and I pray that it is for you, as well. So that's what we're going to be taking a look at here. I want to talk about the why. Why can we understand and know that the things that are sure, faith in Christ, that we have everything we need for life and godliness? Calling and election. How could we know that that's really a sure thing? He gives us some reasons. We're going to take a look at those. The first of those to help us along this road of having confidence in what the sure things really are and that they are ours. The first has to do with the experience of faith. The experience of faith, the experiences you have in life, are the most potent evidence that you have to believe that something is true. You believe a certain person or people love you because of your experience with those people. Right? It's not because they said, I love you. It's because of your experience with those people that has proven it to be true. You believe in gravity, not because somebody taught you about gravity, but because you've tripped and fallen on your face before. That's why you believe. You believe that there are some songs that should never be sung again because you have the experience of hearing achy, breaky heart, right? And so there are certain things you just know to be true based on the experiences that you've had. And the same thing is true when it comes to faith. The experiences that you've had with faith and with Jesus and with the gospel, the ways that God has worked in your life in the past, or the experiences that you have had that ought to be the things that bring us to the place of belief. The problem is that there are circumstances and issues and troubles and trials that come up in our life that become our present reality. And because of the pain and the difficulty and the challenge of what we're going through in the moment, we can tend to forget the experience of faith because we're living in the midst of the trial. And we get so overwhelmed by the trial that it becomes all-consuming to the point where we kind of forget about the faith. And so that's why Peter writes what he does here. Very interesting, if you read verse 12, in fact, that's exactly what we're going to do. Verse 12, if you take a look at it, look at what he writes. He says, so I will always remind you of these things. Of what things? Faith, calling, election, God's work in you, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. He says, you know it, it's in you, nothing's changed, but you've forgotten. So let me remind you, he says. You've forgotten. And you've allowed the present to overwhelm your experience of faith. And he wants you to draw that faith forward. So very important, because the truth is we can all be forgetful. Even about the biggest things in life, the things you think, you never forget that. Sometimes you forget. Carolyn and I had a teacher in college who was your typical absent-minded professor. I mean, he didn't just forget to grade your tests and give them back to you. He forgot to come to class. (laughs) And he's the teacher, right? On one occasion, it was somewhat legend at the school, he he went to a party at another professor's house on a Friday night. And on Monday, back at school, the host professor asked this absent-minded guy when he was going to come back and get his car. And the absent-minded guy goes, So that's where it is. I've been trying to figure out where I left it all weekend. Right? You can forget even some of the biggest things in life, and that's what Peter is saying. Even faith. Even the experience we've had of faith. And he says, let me remind you so that we might remember. Because we can be forgetful. And so we fill life with reminders, right? You've got your phone. You set notifications or you set alarms on your phone so that you won't forget your wife's birthday or whatever is important that you would remember. Parents remind their children things over and over again because they can be forgetful. Look both ways before you cross the street. Put on clean underwear in case you're in an accident, right? The most important things of life, the vital things we remind ourselves of in our passage, that's what Peter's doing. He's telling believers to remember. And just what is it that he wants them to keep in mind? The experience they've had of faith. And this is very urgent that he would get this across to the believers so that they wouldn't fall prey to the false teaching that is all around them. And it's also urgent for Peter that he would get this message out. And here's why. Look at verse 13. He writes, I think it, right to re- it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Peter knows that he's going to die soon. And so what he's doing is he is taking his last breath, as it were, and he is communicating what he wants to be sure is known and carried forward. He wants to make an impact for the present and for the future. I love that. I want that be, to be true of me that I'm using my last breath to communicate something that is vital and something that is important to carry forward. And he's not done yet. Verse 15, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Peter's making sure that his message doesn't die out, not just for the present, but even once he's gone. And so what's he doing? He's writing some things down. So that people will have them. Now it ends up becoming scripture. We're still benefiting from what he's wanting to be sure isn't forgotten after his death. Well, it's not been forgotten, has it? And I think that's awesome. And I think we should do the same. I know some of you are grandparents who are working very hard to speak into the lives of your grandchildren so that there is a message that they might carry beyond when you're gone so that it might continue to influence them into the future or your great-grandchildren, or your children. And it's completely appropriate, and we should do that very thing. Peter knows, I'm going to be gone, but that doesn't mean the message can't carry on. Some of you are even writing things down so that your kids can look back on them, your grandkids can look back on them and be reminded. That's exactly what Peter's trying to do here as well. We need to be intentional about giving in that way, and also about receiving. Peter is being intentional with us so that we would remember our experience, so that we would not be forgetful, even when those false teachers come along. Because as we said before, there are circumstances, there's teaching, there are things that can lead us astray, so we need to put down anchor points that we can be reminded about who God is. And about what he's done. And the most powerful of those for our, us are our own experience of faith. That we don't just set them aside. That we don't allow them to be overwhelmed by the present circumstance that we're going through. And for some of you, you're in the midst of that very thing right now. And there's some trial, there's some problem, there's some pain that is going on. And you're kind of floundering. You're wondering, God, where are you? Why can't I experience you as I experienced you? Oh, in the past, we need to be reminded about those days of when God communicated to us at the start, when he drew Him to himself, when he has transformed our heart and our mind and our life, the experiences that we've had together with God, that those would be constant reminders in the moment. That's why Peter says, let me remind you of these things. Even though you're fully established in the faith, even though you know Christ, you're forgetting. And you might be also might be today. That's the reason that God brought you here today is so that you could hear that for the circumstance that you're in. Or it may be that there's some circumstance that is ahead in the week to come, or before long, when it's going to hit you between the eyes, and you're going to be tempted to sort of throw out faith. You're going to be tempted to to flounder around for a while. Peter's saying, "Don't do that. Remember your experience of faith. Allow that to be front and center with where you are and how you're living." because it'll keep you from falling aside. It's a sure thing that we have that experience of faith and it will communicate powerfully for where we are. It's a place he starts. He goes on from there. He says there's another thing that can prove it true. Or when you think about the things that are sure that he's communicated to us, another reason that you can have confidence in that experience of faith, and the eyewitness testimony. Interesting the way he weaves this passage. Peter's a guy who spent a lot of time with Jesus. He heard Jesus teach on many, 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 many occasions on the things that were most important that Jesus was trying to communicate. And so Peter was a guy who could pretty easily sniff out when there was false teaching about. Because he had heard Jesus talk, teach the true thing so often, he knew exactly when he heard That which was false. And so he uses verse 16 here to actually call out some of these false teachers. He writes, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is calling the teaching of these false teachers mere stories. They're just making them up to serve their own purposes. And yes, they sound kind of familiar. And they would talk about themes like the incarnation of Jesus or Jesus coming into the world. Or they would talk about, yeah, you've heard about the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Was it really that, they might say? Did he really die? Did he really provide your victory over sin and him going to the cross? Or they just sort of downplay it. Or maybe it had something to do with the the resurrection. Did he really rise from the dead or about his Second coming. What can you really expect? They would throw doubt out there and cause people to start to shrink back. But Peter here is an eyewitness. And for that which he didn't eyewitness himself, he heard all of the teaching from the eyewitnesses or from Jesus himself. And that combined together with the fact that Jesus is, or excuse me, that Peter willingly allows himself to die a martyr's death makes Peter a very, very reliable witness. Eyewitnesses are always reliable witnesses. And you're longing to have, looking for their testimony to speak into certain situations. Last week, Carolyn and I went on a bike ride one night and we were riding up to this pretty busy intersection and we had a stop sign But the people who were on the cross streets did not. And so we stopped there at the stop sign and we were waiting for an opportunity to to go past. Now there was a crosswalk right there and there was also a sign that said to stop for pedestrians that were in the crosswalk. Now, I know the story about the priests and the Jordan River, and it wasn't until they actually stepped in that the waters parted and they could get across. Well, I didn't have that sort of faith in the drivers that were coming by, so I wasn't about to step into the crosswalk. We just waited there at the stop sign for the traffic to clear so we could go across, which it never did until this nice lady was coming down the street, And she saw that we were trying to get across, and so she sort of handled it like as though we were in the crosswalk. So she pulled to a stop so that we could get across. And there was a long line of cars behind her, and they all came to a stop as well, except one. The fourth one back in the row didn't see everybody stopping in front of him. And so all of a sudden he sees it, and he's wheels the brakes you know he steps on the brakes but not soon enough and he slams into the third car with enough force that the third car slams into the second car with enough force that the second car hits into the first car the one who had stopped and I'm feeling kind of guilty about all of this going on right now the upside was that now all the cars are stopped we could get across now, we did go across and we actually talked to this nice lady who had stopped For us, and we tried not to listen to all of the cussing drivers that were telling her that she shouldn't have. But the other reason we went over and we stopped was because we know that the police were going to be coming soon enough, and we knew that we should tell the police what we saw happen that we should tell them our eyewitness account of what went down. And the police officer thanked me many times for waiting around to tell the story. He said, because it's so helpful to have someone who was there and saw the whole thing to be able to help us to establish the facts and exactly what happened. Eyewitness testimony is always very important. And that's especially true when it comes to the Bible and the truth claims. Peter says that you can either believe the testimony of the false teachers, who weren't even there, or you can believe our testimony, who were there. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised stories. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Then he goes on to give one of his own experiences of being an eyewitness. He says, it's not just that I'm saying they have have it wrong, we have it right, and that He says there's a reason that we're confident, and part of it was that he spent all that time with Jesus. And he goes on and gives another story, another incident he reports when that very much was the case. Look at verse 17. He writes, talking about Jesus, He received honor and glory from God the Father, When the voice came to him from the majestic glory, that's from God, saying, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Some of you know that that, you, you know the story that that's referring to. It's talking about the time when Peter and James and John were invited up on the mountain with Jesus, and they met with Moses and Elijah supernaturally, and when Jesus was transfigured before them, when he was not just seen by them as the man that they'd been living with for a while, not in that sort of physical appearance, but his full glory as God was on display. It was an amazing sight, to be sure. Peter would never have forgotten it the rest of his life. No doubt about it. And so here, Peter says, you can believe the fables of those false teachers if you want, or we were there. We were on the mountain. We saw God, Jesus, in his full glory. He's saying, go with the eyewitnesses, Go to the source. In the New Testament, you've got 27 letters or books that were all written by eyewitnesses or by people who interviewed the eyewitnesses and then wrote it down. It can be trusted. It's a sure thing. The eyewitness testimony can give you that sort of confidence. And there's one other thing that can provide this sort of confidence for us in the moments when we might otherwise Doubt. You've got the experience of faith. You've got the eyewitness testimony. And you also have, lastly, the reliability of the scriptures. Peter is continuing to make his case here. He appeals to the fact that the scriptures can be trusted. Verse 19 says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. When he talks about the prophetic message here, he's referring primarily to the Old Testament scriptures. He talks about the prophets, who are those people like Moses and Elijah, who are very much on his mind because he's just been talking here about the transfiguration. And he mentions the reliability of those scriptures and what it has to say about Jesus, about the incarnation. The same things that the false teachers were false teaching about, or about his virgin birth, or about the crucifixion, or the resurrection, or his return. And then he says in a fatherly tone, you will do well to pay attention to it. The word of God and his revealed will for us is not something that you can like but not live. We're accustomed to liking all kinds of things today, don't we? Like, like, like. We can like easily, but it doesn't mean that we're living it. The thing that sort of thing can happen spiritually. We can just get into the, yeah, I think that's good. Yeah, I think that's good. We need to live it, not just like it. And if there's any remaining doubt as to the source and reliability of the Scriptures, Peter continues, verse 20, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. In other words, the biblical authors are not making this up. And he says it in a very interesting way here, because he's talking against the false teachers who did exactly that. They were just making it up. He's not done. Verse 21. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is one of the most important verses, these couple of verses right here, as it comes to the reliability of the Scriptures in the whole Bible, right here. I don't know if you're into underlining your Bible, but even if you're not, these are great verses to underline and star and highlight and whatever to draw this out for you. These are vital verses. The Bible was written by 40 different authors from three different continents in three different languages. You would think if you have all of that, what you would have as a result is just kind of this mishmash of ideas and thoughts and themes that was totally disjointed. It's not at all what we have. We have something that has tremendous harmony and unity. And the reason is because it has been unified by the Spirit of God who was superintending all of these authors, still allowed their own individual personalities and style to come through in the way that they write, and that's why one letter reads different than another letter does. But in terms of what we have, we can have complete confidence because it was overseen by the Holy Spirit who guided those authors as they wrote. There's a technical theological term for that. We call it inspiration. That the Holy Spirit inspired. That's what Peter is saying here that the Holy Spirit inspired what was written so that we can have confidence that what we have is from God. Now, when we talk about inspiration, oftentimes there are a couple other words that are put together with it to more tightly define it. And I'm going to mention these to you because there are some people, when we talk about false teaching, there are some who will say, yeah, I believe the Bible is inspired, but what they're saying is that there's a portion of it. Or there are some concepts that are indeed inspired, but not really the Bible as you have it, but they don't say that. Yeah, the Bible's inspired, but it's, it's pieces, it's, it's parts. And so oftentimes when we talk about inspiration, we take it another step. And we call it actually verbal plenary inspiration. All right, Just some other theological terms, a little theology lesson for you here all right? When it talks about verbal, what that means is that the inspiration goes all the way down to the words, not just the concepts. Think about it like this. I could say that Jesus is a nice individual. Completely true. Or I could say Jesus is a kind, compassionate, humble, caring individual. All of that means that he's nice, but it means so much more than just he's nice. It takes it far beyond that some would say no it's what's inspired is the fact that Jesus is nice not the words that's not what we're saying we're saying it's verbal inspiration which means it goes down to the very words all of it which is one of the reasons that we love to go verse by verse through the scriptures because we encounter all the words so it's verbal inspiration it's verbal plenary inspiration When we talk about that word, it's talking about the totality. It says that it extends to everything. It is all-inclusive. Some people say that parts of the Bible might be inspired, but other parts aren't. That's not what we're saying. It's verbal all the way down to the words. It's plenary, meaning that it deals with the totality of it, inspiration. That's what we're saying when we speak of inspiration. Another very important scripture in this regard, is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says, all scripture is God-breathed. What's that sound like? Totality, all scripture, God-breathed, inspired. Okay? It's saying the same thing. All scripture is God-breathed, by the way, These are a couple other verses that need to be underlined or highlighted in some way in your Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice how both Peter and Paul are making the case for the reliability of the Scriptures. And they're not just saying it's authoritative, though it is. They're also saying, and what we just read is that through them we have been thoroughly equipped. What's this series about? Equipping, equipped. We've been seeing that from Peter again and again and again. Well here, this is written by Paul. Paul gets in on the act as well. He's saying the same thing. And he's saying it is valuable for us in life because we have been thoroughly equipped for every good work through the scriptures. Scriptures are immensely practical. They are living, and they are active for how we would live our lives, to guide us in how we would live our lives today. So, given all of that, it comes down to us now, what are we going to do with it? If it can be trusted in that way, if through the experience of faith and the eyewitness testimony and the reliabilities of the Scriptures through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if what it brings us is true and real if what we've responded to is genuine faith then what are we going to do with that are we just going to say well that makes this wonderful i'm going to sit it on the shelf next time i might take it down i'm going to have confidence in that thing or does it speak to who we need to be today and tomorrow how we need to live how we need to communicate how we need to recall be inspired in who god is And if we've been thoroughly equipped, not to know all good things, but for every good work, what are we doing? Where does that lead you today? Where does the faith that we would have in our faith and in God, what does that require of you today and this week? Who do you need to speak up to in that regard Faith you won't express on the outside is faith you haven't embraced on the inside. You might say, no, I'm a person of deep faith. Well, we prove that by how we live, not by what we say. And so how is it proven true for you? When you think about the circumstances that you're facing in the moment, how is your experience of faith overwhelming the trouble, the difficulty, the trial that you're in the midst of? So what are we going to do? What are you going to do? I wonder if we might be able to boil this down just to one thing. And the thing is, I'm not going to give you your one thing. You know your one thing. Or you need to ask God to reveal that to you. You might have three things that God is saying to you, here's how I want you to respond to this. But even if you were just to boil it down to, what's the one thing that I would do in response to what I've seen. To, in response to the fact that we have a sure thing in our faith. We have everything we need for life and godliness. We have faith and calling and election. And we have the demonstration that we can have confidence in those things because of our experience of faith, because of the eyewitness testimony, because of the reliability of the scriptures. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You might want to have a conversation in the car on the way home with the other people who are there with you. Ask them, what's your one thing? Because God doesn't want us to be thoroughly equipped for every good work and sit on our hands. And I don't want that for us either. So I just ask you to contemplate. How's God leading you? How's he guiding you today? And are you willing, because of the sure thing that is yours, to respond with boldness and get it done? Heavenly Father, thank you for Peter's bold and forthright words. Father, we would acknowledge today that there have been times when doubts have swept in, when we've struggled. With faith, where we've struggled with where we are and the conviction of believing it to be true or wondering whether or not we've somehow gotten off or if we're not really in faith as we thought maybe we were. The doubts have arisen. Thank you that what Peter brings to us, as he brings to those he's writing to in the first century because they struggled, brought to us today because we can struggle. I pray that we would allow those doubts to be influenced by the experiences of faith that we've had with you, by experiencing your presence, by knowing of your love, by having the occasion to have come to faith to recognize your goodness and your glory. Lord, I pray that that would sweep over us as would the, just this understanding that we're learning from one who was there, who walked with Jesus, who heard him teach and is simply carrying forward the beauty of that message and the power of that message is an eyewitness to it all. And then that we have the confidence of the fact that you were the one who has made sure that what we have in the scriptures is exactly what you would have us to have. These are things that give us confidence. And Lord, we've lived with doubt and weakness and neglect. Lord, I just pray that today, we would develop a boldness and a courage appropriately in keeping with what we've learned of you and been reminded of by Peter. Because these are real things that come into our lives, real challenges that we face. I just pray today for everyone who's going through it now or will in the future to come that we would remember and be reminded of all that is a sure thing for us. Because what you've done on our behalf, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.